You take your Bible, please, and turn to Nehemiah chapter 3. I know you just got settled in, but I'm going to ask you to stand again in honor of the reading of the Word of God, and we're just going to jump right into the reading. You've got a lot of information there in front of you. We'll try to make sense of it and go through it, but I do want to get these uh, verses of Scripture before you in discussing chapter 3, which has to do with the building of the gates. Ten gates, we're going to try our best to get through the first five today, the Lord willing, and then come back uh, this next week and consider all of those on Palm Sunday. And uh, so I pray that this will, this will be an encouragement uh, to you in your walk with the Lord. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1 then verse 3, then verse 6, I'll remind you, verse 13 and verse 14. Verse 1, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and the other priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the towered Tower of Henano. Verse 3, the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Verse 6, Joiada, the son of Pasiah, and Meshulam, the son of Basodii, repaired the gate of Yeshana, that is, the old gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. Then slide down to verse 13. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Melchijah, the son of Rechab, the ruler of the district of Beth Hacherim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Father, in the uh, simple but profound historical story of building, we see a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ. I pray that you would help us to unpack some of the meetings, meanings today. I pray that Lord, you would protect us from becoming fanciful, but at the same time, you would help us to dig deep into the, the richness of the gates and what they have to do with the salvation that you've given us, the redemption that we have through your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So give us hearts that are ready to hear. Help our minds to be fully engaged so that we can not only hear the truth, but respond to the truth that you give us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think the first question right out of the, should I say it, the gate, <laughs> is does this passage of Scripture, and you see it there in the, the big idea for today, does this passage of Scripture really saying what I am saying that it says. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ really found 
in this story in chapter 3? Do we really miss something if this is just a story about a great leader, and it is, building a border wall around and gates through which to go in and out of this city? I'm reminded of that great theologian from the movie The Prince's Bride, Indigo Montoya, who responding to the villain who always said, inconceivable. And finally, Indigo said, I do not think that word means what you think it means. This word means what I think it means. Well, apparently the Apostle Paul knew so. Because we get glimpses as we, as we go through the New Testament, and it's incredible when we come to these different passages of Scripture. Paul actually called Jesus the rock that followed the children of Israel and provided water for them in the wilderness. Jesus knew so. He said, and this is just a few samplings, that the manna, the serpent on a pole... The, the prophet who was swallowed by a big fish all spoke of him. In fact, Jesus said that the entire Old Testament spoke of him. I know that I've given you these verses over and over again for those of you who have been on this journey now for some time as we've been studying through Ezra and then Esther and now Nehemiah. But these things need to be heard perhaps by some visitors here today and then perhaps by some of you who have been here. Jesus was talking to a group of lost people, religious people, but lost people, when he said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you find eternal life. But wait, guys, he said, it is those scriptures that bear witness about me. How many of those scriptures? All of them. And then he said in Luke 24, and this to several believers, you remember that on the road to Emmaus, he said, or it's written there, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to those disciples in, look at this, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Why is it so vital that we see it? Paul tells us that it's for our encouragement. If reading through the Old Testament, all you see are these wonderful stories, for example, of again, a great leader like Nehemiah, or you see a great story about a little boy who defeated a giant, and you can just go on and on and on. But if you miss that, you miss the incredible encouragement. Please listen to me so that you can take these stories and these teachings and you can plug them in to everything that is going on around you and in you and through you. And Jesus speaks to them all. Paul said as much in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. I don't think I have it. There it is. Whatever was written in former times was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So, again, Nehemiah is more than just a story of a very real and historical figure who was a great leader, 
who rebuilt the walls and the gates. It's a story that points us to Jesus Christ and his redemption. It's, it's stunning as we continue through this book. The building of the walls and the gates is a story that spanned 52 days. 52 days it took them to build that. It involved almost the entire group of the returnees to Jerusalem. And the Lord stirred the heart of Nehemiah just like he stirred the heart of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel went back and rebuilt the temple and the altar. Which is what? It's a symbol of the presence of God. We find this in Deuteronomy chapter 12. You shall seek the place that your Lord God will choose out of uh, choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. So, so the issue here for us today is the presence of God. And not only the presence of God, but how to get into the presence of God. The word repairing is used 40 times in the book of Nehemiah. And so it's not just about the church, folks, and it is about the church. Obviously, it's about those of us who are joined together in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is a book, and this is a story that will speak to you individually in your own walk with the Lord, and it will also speak to you as you seek to rebuild your family, perhaps the world around you, Jude said it like this, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. So here's what I'm saying. Unless you have arrived, anybody here arrived in your Christian walk? Unless you have arrived, then this passage of Scripture is for you. Now, you can take this, and this week what I'd like you to do, take your notes on this. Okay? If you're a note taker, take your notes from today's sermon on this. The first five gates is what we are going to do. But this would be a good thing for you. You have it on the back, all ten gates, and you can jot down some scriptures and some things that, that as you have your quiet time, you can make your own journey around this circle of how to get into the presence of God initially and then how to grow in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that clear? Okay, good. Then let's start. Let's start our journey. We're going to make our way around the wall. We're going to do it counterclockwise. Now, that seems counterintuitive to us because we always go clockwise and we read from left to right. But remember that in, 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 in those days and still you read in, in Jerusalem or in, in Israel, you read Hebrew from right to left. So we're going to go counterclockwise, and we're going to start at the gate called the Sheep Gate. Look at where it is. Now, the diagram may not be true to scale exactly, but it's close. And one of the things that you need to see that the Sheep Gate right up there in the northeast corner of the city of Jerusalem is actually the gate that was closest to the temple area. Now, we just read in Deuteronomy, what does the temple area symbolize? The presence of God. Now, you and I are New Testament believers, right? The presence of God is not a place anymore. 
It's a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And you as a believer, you have the, the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit of the living God, the Spirit of Christ living in you. But the sheep gate was closest to the temple area, to the presence of God. Here's what I want to say to you. It's what the title of the sermon is today. The gospel is in the gates. Do you realize that the sheep gate is the only, and, and it says this in your outline, verse 1 and then the, verse 32. We didn't come back and read that. But it's the only gate that is listed twice. I wonder why. The Apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. You see, and you would expect me to say this, but it's true. Everything begins and ends with the gospel. Amen. It's interesting, too, that the high priests built this, the high priest and then the other fellow priest. Look at this in Hebrews. This is a, a long passage of Scripture, but let's look through this. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, that have come, then through greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The amount of blood that was shed during Passover, the whole year around, but especially on Passover, was absolutely enormous. It, it, it would be shocking to us. And you can imagine all the sheep, all the lambs passing through the sheep gate to be slaughtered. It's estimated, and there are different estimates, that as many, get this, as many as 20,000 sheep each day were sacrificed during Passover. But you know what? That blood could never remove even one single sin. We find that out in the book of Hebrews. Again, these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sin. So what does the sheep gate remind us of? What does it speak of? It speaks of, let me use these two words that we've defined before. It speaks of propitiation. Propitiation. And it speaks of atonement for our sins. That the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Savior, have totally removed, has totally removed the penalty for our sins. And it's no small wonder that John the Baptist said these words in John 1, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, folks, the gospel really is in the gates. How do you get into the presence of God? Now, I, I know that there are a lot of, of, of teachings about this. 
And a lot of them border on the, the emotion. I'm not talking about emotionally. We're not trying to work anything up to get into the presence of God. I'm asking how that you, as a sinner against a holy God, how do you get into the presence of God? Into that temple where there is the worship of God. There is only one way. There is only one gate Jesus is not simply one among many ways to the Father. You must enter by grace alone. Look around you and see some of the banners. You must enter by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And Jesus said it, John chapter 10. He said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. And so I, I've just got to stop here. And this will either be just um, a preacher's line or it will mean something to you, believer or non-believer. Have you begun this journey have you repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ as the only way into the presence of the Father? I will ask it like this. Are you in Christ? If you are, then hopefully you are in His presence. And when you came in today, you came in with the heart, the attitude, and this is our motto here at Heritage Baptist Church, that you were delighting in God in the way that he has made it possible for you to come to him through Jesus Christ. But that's not the only part of our motto, is it? We are those who delight in God to do what? Declare his glory. And that leads to the second gate. Let's move on. Are you seeing it around the circle? Next comes the fish gate. What in the world is the fish gate? Well, in those days, it was the gate where typically fishermen brought their fish to sell. But again, I remind you, the gospel is in the gates. Didn't the symbol of a fish play a big part in the story that Jesus used to describe his own death and burial and resurrection? I'm talking about Jonah and the big fish. Didn't the early Christians use the sign of a fish to identify one another? Do you remember the Greek name of the fish? And there's a whole mnemonic that goes with that, an acronym, that they would draw the upper curve of the ichthus, the fish, if they wondered if someone were a believer in Jesus Christ and the other person would complete that and draw the bottom part to make sure that that person knew that he was a follower of Christ. Using this imagery, what was the first thing Jesus said to his followers. Isn't that interesting? He said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. The early, listen to me, you know, it's interesting that whenever I talk about witnessing, 
If people are really listening and they, they understand what we're, we're talking about, sharing, proclaiming the gospel, about half of the church congregation goes into vapor lock. They begin looking away. Uh-oh, the preacher's going to talk about me going out and sharing my faith, and, and, and there's all kinds of fear that attends that. But, but here's the thing about the early Christians growing out of their relationship with Christ, remember, they had come into a relationship, into the presence of God, where they delighted in God. They couldn't help but declare His glory. It's kind of interesting that nobody had to tell them to. Acts 4.20 says it like this, when in fact a couple of the disciples were told, stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And he's, they said, we can't, we can't but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. They just couldn't help it. Now, you've got to see that this was Israel's commission. A lot of people feel like that, that the whole gospel was only for Israel in the Old Testament, but no. God wanted them to take the good news to the nations, but they balked. And we can see the commission in a verse like Isaiah 49, 6, where he said to the people of Israel, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Does that sound like something that someone else said in the New Testament? When the Apostle Paul began his ministry, what did he say when he said, we've got to take the gospel to the Gentiles? The Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you be, may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And that's the church's connection. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, again, is not a verse meant to guilt people into doing something that they really don't want to do. It is a mandate for us to share what is absolutely the best news in the world. And that's not an exaggeration. When he said, go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, he was simply saying to us who know the Lord Jesus, go and declare what you delight in. It's natural, isn't it? Isn't it for us? If you went out this last weekend and you went to a new restaurant, or maybe it was an old restaurant, it could be a real fancy one or it could be Chick-fil-A. But if you had a wonderful meal, it's just human nature. And somebody this morning asked you, well, what did you do this weekend? Well, we went to and then fill in the, the, the blank with the name of that restaurant. And then what happens naturally? You begin to talk about that steak that had that, that garlic butter melting on top of it and that baked potato that I, I know it's right before lunch. There was a pastor who said it like this. 
you declare, you declare what you delight in. And whether it's a trip to the Grand Canyon, or it's your favorite meal, or if it's a loved one that you love being with, in the course of asking how did your weekend go, you will always declare that in which you delight. And that's why the second gate that was built was the fish gate. Now, let me just say this and correct something that's very, very prevalent today. I don't, I don't know if I want to use the word popular, but it's prevalent. I hear this among some Christians in some circles. It's a supposed quote from St. Francis of Assisi, and it goes like this, and I know many of you have heard it. Preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. Wow. Now, I understand that our, listen, that our walk at all times ought to match our talk. And if by that, that's what you mean, then that's fine. But I'm afraid that, that sometimes people have slipped into this, well, you know, I'm just not going to be verbal about the gospel. I'll just let my light shine before men in such a way. And I started thinking about that for myself. If I am so presumptuous as to think that just watching my life is going to declare Christ crucified for our sins, Christ buried, Christ resurrected from the grave on the third day, we need to correct that. Yes, a life submitted to the Lord Jesus, but also the verbal testimony of the gospel, according to Paul, that I just quoted in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You got that? So we're, 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 we're in the circle. We, we've come through the sheep gate, through the, the, the only one through whom we can come, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been given our commission at the fish gate, but now we go to the gate of Hashanah, the old gate. This gate speaks of truth. I'm going to park on two of the gates today, okay? This is one of them. Just talk about this. This is nothing new for those of you who have been here any length of time. But let's talk about truth. And, and uh, Jeremiah 6.16 really tells us as much as any other verse, I think, in the Bible when it comes to this. Thus says the Lord. Now, this was in a particular context. But it's for us today. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads. And look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. Now look at the promise to this and find rest for your souls. I'm going to leave that up for just a second. Truth is both old and it's also very contemporary. Because truth never changes. It's eternal, so it's old. And we as a church, by the way, this is not chest thumping. Look at us. There are plenty of other churches that are doing this. I say plenty. There are some. But the church, and hopefully our church, will always seek to build 
on the foundation of the Word of God and not on the shifting sands of man's so-called truths. I think if I hear another person who names the name of Christ say, well, this means this to me, or this is my truth, I don't want to be crass. I think I'm going to throw up. <laughs> Let's make clear what we're not saying, okay? This, this really needs to be said. Here's what we are not saying. And I've, I've heard preachers use this. When I was growing up, and there were a lot of things that were happening, particularly as a, a young adult, and the contemporary was coming in. And so preachers would use this and say, ah, time out. We don't need to do all this new stuff. And so what they meant by the old paths were the paths that our grandfathers and grandmothers walked. A generation ago. I'll, I'll just say this. That's not far enough back. In fact... I am so glad for some of the changes that have been made since I was a kid growing up in church. Now, what I'm talking about primarily is things that are structural, maybe stylistic, but I, this is hard for some of you to imagine unless you maybe are from a rural area or whatever. I grew up in a church, and this was a church in a town, in a city, we did not, in fact, when I grew up, I'm, that, I'm this old, we did not have air conditioning in the church building. Anybody been in a church like that? In the, the, I mean, now the dead of winter was okay. We had, we had heat and all the rest. Uh, but in the middle of the summer, oh my. Now we had fans. We had ceiling fans. And, and we'd open the windows. And we had the funeral parlor fans, okay? And, and, and I'm telling you, and, and boy, the preacher would be preaching, and all of a sudden, a yellow jacket would fly in the, the, the window. You remember those days. Uh, depending on whose pants leg it got up, we might have had revival. I don't know. So believe me when I say I am glad for some of the new innovations like air conditioning. I know some of you may feel that it's too cool in here today, but this August you're going to be very, very glad. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about this traditional versus contemporary stylistic battle that rages in many churches. I, again, I'm, I'm telling a little bit of my age. As a young man, I was a part of the Jesus movement. Okay, I, I'm looking around to see, okay, Lowell, you're not quite as old as I am, but anybody, have you studied ancient history, kids? The Jesus movement of the early 70s? We traded the hippies, it was revolutionary. The hippies traded the peace sign for the one-way Jesus sign that Larry Norman started. And speaking of Larry Norman, the, the standard fare for music, it changed from the old hymns. Do, do, do you guys even know names? Do you know Larry Norman, who he was? 
Huh? How about love song? <laughs> I'm kidding. Anybody, anybody else know who love song was? Or uh, I could just, I wrote down, here, here was a, a literal Christian group of the day. Charles McFeeder and the Bible Belt Boogie Band. There was pretty good music, some. Boy, there was a lot of junk. Now listen, during those days, there were also a lot of cults that started up, pulling young people away. See, it's not a new versus old in terms of, of, of certain things that we're talking about, but when you begin to substitute the old paths, the ancient paths, the truth of God's Word that goes all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, it runs all the way through to the last page of Revelation. And these two new cults that I dealt with as a youth pastor, the children of God, the Way Bible Research Society, they're probably, if, if even here, they're not very visible now, but they they did what, what cults always do. They attacked the nature of man, sin. They attacked the nature of God, who he really is. He's not Trinitarian. He wasn't in those groups. And they attacked the nature of salvation. They usually add works. So what do you do? Are there cults around today? Are there new movements? Are there new ideologies around today? You better believe it. By the way, just a word for you about the traditional and contemporary. I've given a lot of thought to that. I'll just give you my thoughts. Notice I didn't say my truth. But they're my thoughts. And I, I've had conversations like these with people who demand contemporary over traditional, okay? Just remember that today's contemporary is tomorrow's traditional. Just remember that. And, and you can go back and say the same thing, vice versa. It has to do with more than that because the ancient paths were ancient when Jeremiah wrote it. So here is what this part, the third station in this circle around our progress in our growth in the Lord Jesus Christ, first to be saved Second, to be called out as fishers of men. And then third, to know which path to walk on. The gospel is in the gates. And there are a lot of paths out there. And there are a lot of people like with Pilgrim and, and Bunyan's work. They'll take this way. By the way, the easy way is not always the best way. We're talking about the bedrock, foundational doctrines that since the garden, Satan and the world and the moral insanity of lost people have been trying to pervert. I'll say a couple of things about this before we move on. Um, 
Sometimes we act as if what's going on around us is new. It's really just the old attacks dressed in modern garb. And as I said a minute ago, the enemy will always attack the nature of man. What is sin? Do we really need a Savior? The nature of God. Who is He? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Do you believe in the Trinity? And then the nature of salvation. And if you've been one of those who has said, boy, the times are unprecedented, that what's going around us is brand new, I encourage you, read your Bible. The attacks today, as I said, are the same in different clothing with different words. And how do you counter them? The same way you've always countered them, with the Word of God. So here, here's what I want you to do whenever you hear the insanity around you. And some of it's going it's to come from within the evangelical movement. Some of it's going to come from just culture. And when you hear these things, don't just let them go. Pull your children or your grandchildren aside and talk to them about the ancient paths. I might be going out on a limb to say this. I'm just going to generalize, but I think most of you will get it. So when you're sitting there watching news with your children, and a Harvard graduate, the smartest person in the room, supposedly, is not able to define what a woman is, Listen, don't just start throwing rocks. Pull back. Turn the TV off. Pull out resources and sit down and show your children and your grandchildren. Two resources. Obviously, you could guess that one of those is the Word of God. But one of the best resources you could have in your library, it's going to be, it's, it, it'll be an investment, is the Webster's Unabridged Dictionary of 1828. Did you get that? The Webster's Unabridged Dictionary of 1828. The thing I love about it, and I looked it up, I looked up woman. Oh, an adult female human being. Oh, do you, do you guys understand that? A woman is an adult female human being. The thing I love about Webster's is that in most of the definitions, many of the definitions, he put a Bible verse. <laughs> and so it has Genesis chapter 2. And you open up Genesis chapter 2 and maybe cross-reference over to Genesis chapter 1. And here's this rich definition of man taking part of God, taking part of man informing woman and bringing her to the man and the two shall become one flesh beautiful so so the next time and that, that's just one example i'm not trying to grandstand here but that is a very very real example of the things going on around us which you and i can counter with the ancient paths of the word of god there are others, that's why we did the series several years ago on the Apostles' Creed to tell us the fundamentals of the faith, the solas, 
scriptures that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, and for the glory of God alone. And then, by the way, just teach them this. Let's go back to the sheep gate. There really is only one way. And I love what it said in Jeremiah. Do you remember the last phrase? What's the promise? You'll find rest for your souls. Let's move on. How much time have I got left? Oh, I've got plenty of time. The valley gate. Now, on the, on the outline, do you notice the long wall, the broad wall? Do you notice how long it is between the, the gate of truth and the valley gate? What might the valley gate indicate? It reminds us that when, listen, when we repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we believe in Christ, when we determine to follow him as fishers of men according to his absolute unchanging truth, there will be inevitable valleys of opposition, conflict, and suffering and even death. And if you became a Christian as a, uh, an older person, maybe late teens, early 20s, or even older than that, and Christ was so real and delivered you from so many things, that the, the junk, you might have experienced a, a honeymoon. Did anybody ever experience? I, I did. Kind of a honeymoon where, boy, you could just overcome sin and the, the, the flesh. And, and you, you, boy, it was just really something. But along the way, the Christian life is not lived on the romantic balcony with wonderful emotional feelings. It's lived in the trenches where the battle takes place. And the gospel is the only hope that you're going to make it through. Psalmist said this, but though, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm going to grieve, I'm going to weep. Ron, I didn't ask you for permission to share this, but walked in this morning and saw Ron Scarberry. These guys back here are so faithful. Amen. Guys in our sound booth. Ron's there every week. I didn't see Barbara here this morning, but uh, and he, Ron was weeping. If you know Ron, he, he's just even-tempered, steady as a rock. He was weeping. And I'd forgotten, and I said, hey, Ron, what's up? And he said, April 3rd, and it hit me. Eight years ago, Rachel died in a his teenager, 16-year-old, died in a tragic car wreck. I, I think, Ron, you'll probably weep every April 3rd for the rest of your life, and that's okay. The valley of the shadow of death doesn't mean we don't cry, and we don't ache, and we don't grieve, and we don't mourn the loss. But the promise is... The gospel is in the gates, by the way. The promise is we will not fear. Why? Because you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
The valleys will be times, in case you haven't noticed, the valleys may very well be the times of your greatest growth. Psalmist said it like this, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And then one more. I know this is hard. Paul says suffering is a gift. For to you it's been granted. I'm going to quote out another version that I memorized it in. For you, for you it's been granted not only to believe. How great of a gift is it to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? but also to suffer. It's given as a gift. And when it is given as a gift, here's the question. Will you take it? The valley gate's heavy. And it can be long. The pain that you suffer can last for a long, long time. But let's move to the last one and finish up with this. And uh, I would encourage you the last gate that we're going to go through is the dung gate. The dung gate. Oh. If you use this for your quiet time, I'm going to encourage you, this will sound weird, spend some time at the dung gate. <laughs> What's dung? Dung is... Primarily animal excrement, manure, leftovers, scraps, garbage. It, it, maybe it can be recycled, but back in those days it was taken out and burned. The reason why I said park at the dung gate for a little bit, there is nothing in the old man that is going to be recycled. You need to live out of the transformed man. If any man is a new creation, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. This is a powerful reminder. Listen, it is to me, as I studied through this, I hung out at the dung gate for a while this week. And I realized that even though I am saved, there is plenty of garbage in my life, in my soul, that I still need to deal with. So in your gospel journey, hang out at the dung gate. And here's what it's going to mean, okay? It's going to mean, number one, you're going to think about your priorities. Paul did. It's, it's a matter of prioritizing. Paul said, look at, all of, look at, look at my resume. All of the, and none of these things were bad. This is before he said this. Look at my resume. I, all of these things are great, but in terms of comparing with knowing Christ, it's dung, Suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish or dung, King James, in order that I may gain Christ. So it's a, it's a matter of priorities. I was thinking of an old, this morning, I was just, I was going over this and all of a sudden that old song, the old rugged cross came to mind. 
I will cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. Just remember this, what fed you yesterday, maybe it was something you did at your job, or maybe it was a relationship, or maybe it was something else. I'm not talking about the old truths. We never discard those. But whatever fed you, just remember this, what fed you yesterday is today's dung. So prioritize. Second thing, cleansing. Now, this speaks of our coming to faith in Christ, but I think that there is an element of it that speaks to our daily cleansing. We do not need to be saved over again. That's not what this is about. If we confess our sins, if we agree with God, if we're having our quiet time and He convicts us of sin, we come to the Word and we say, yes, Lord, I agree. He will all, he's already been faithful to save. You're not under condemnation, but He will be faithful to cleanse from that unrighteousness. It's kind of like spring cleaning. Anybody get into spring cleaning? Do you know why you need spring cleaning? Because you let things go during the winter and they pile up. The dust accumulates, and so you finally say, i got to do some deep spring cleaning. Jan's been after me to clean out the garage. She just said it. Well, you know, if all along the way every day, listen, if all along the way you're not only prioritizing, but you're coming to that fountain for the cleansing blood every day, you're going to be clean. How often should you have faith in God? Fair question, isn't it? How often? Every day, all day. How often should you repent? Every day, all day. How often should you preach the gospel to yourself? All day, every day. So as you begin your journey around the gates, just remember the gospel is in the gates. If you're here today and you've not begun that journey, There's no other way than through the sheep gate. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I beg you, repent, believe in Jesus Christ. Christ crucified. Christ buried. Christ raised on the third day. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Repent and believe in Him and start that journey. Father, I thank you for uh, the wonder of your word. I thank you that you uh, tell us about your son and the plan of redemption. You weave it through every, uh, almost every page of Scripture, every leaf of Scripture, as it were, according, according to Thomas Adams. Father, I pray that you would help us to see that and to believe savingly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then for those of us, who want to be in your presence and to live out what the Christian life means, I pray that we would make our way around the gates of Jerusalem symbolically as a picture of what we need to do on a daily basis to walk with you. Father, I thank you for that. Now help us to seal these truths to our hearts 
Help us as we go out to live out what that means every day this week. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.